The OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. Hello and welcome to the OCD and Anxiety Podcast, where we explore how to have a more positive relationship with anxiety disorders, taking back control so that you can start living the life you choose and not the one chosen by your fears. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 12. Now just time for some shameless self-publicisation before we get going. And um, I'd like to tell you about my, uh, my website and a short free uh, course for OCD and anxiety. Um, I spent the first month um, of this lockdown working on this uh, free mini course. And uh, I, I think you'll find that it's really helpful. It's got lots of um, interesting techniques that you can start applying from acceptance commitment therapy and uh, soft skills that you might find really helpful in, um, in learning to deal with your OCD and anxiety in a, in a more effective way. Um, obviously, it's not a replacement for therapy, and actually it would work best if you're working with a therapist, but you may also want something to help you along with that process. Um, if you're interested in that, you can go to my website at www.robertjamescoaching.com. Uh, there you can also find my blog, um, I'm doing a new series of blogs at the moment on mindset and OCD, which I think is a really interesting area and often something that isn't actually talked about that much. So moving on to today's episode, this week I interview Robin Stern. Robin is a licensed clinical social worker and therapist in New York and California who has been practicing since 2012. She received her master's in social work from California State University at Northbridge and a master's in counselling education from Hunter College. She provides therapy in New York, New Jersey, Florida and California. She also offers coaching services remotely via phone or Skype, utilising the same treatment modalities that she does in individual therapy sessions. As someone who has been affected by bodily dysmorphic disorder and anxiety, she has a unique perspective and approach. She combines research-based treatment and her own successful treatment strategies uh, to tailor them to each individual client. Robin tells us that BDD, OCD and anxiety disorders can be life-changing and painful. However, with the right modality including cognitive behavioural therapy, exposure response prevention, acceptance commitment therapy and mindfulness, you can learn to not engage in compulsions, challenge the way you think and feel and most importantly, come to experience a healthier and better quality of life. Robin's passion and, uh, and knowledge uh, within working uh, in this, this field really come through throughout the interview. And uh, not only is she a specialist in OCD, uh, but she, she's also very much um, a specialist in working with people with bodily dysmorphic disorder, um, which is a really interesting area and uh, something that I don't actually know that much about myself. So it was, it was fascinating to find out more about that and how she, um, how she changes her treatment um, approach for dealing with, with these kinds of problems. To get in touch with Robin, you can find her on Instagram at BDD OCD Therapist. 
Anyways, I hope you enjoy. And uh, if you would like to leave us a five-star rating, that would be much appreciated. Many thanks. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So uh, you're, you're based in New York and you're, you're a therapist uh, working with, with OCD. Have you, have you been working as a therapist for a long time? I've been working as a therapist since the 2012, first starting in California. Right. So why did you decide to become a therapist? Growing up, I always knew that I wanted to help people. I didn't necessarily know in what capacity. I used to work uh, as a guidance counselor, so I helped kids and students in the school setting. Mm -hmm. And then the more I got involved, the more I realized I wanted to go deeper into helping people. And the only way to be able to do that would be going back to school to be able to become a therapist. Yeah. So once I decided to make that call in 2010, I went back for my second master's degree in social work mm. with the thought in my head that the goal would be to be a therapist in private practice with a specialization in obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, and body-focused repetitive disorders. Wow. Okay. And, and why did you decide to focus on, on, the, on these areas? So for me, I have body dysmorphic disorder myself. The DSM-5 does have body dysmorphic disorder as a separate disorder, and it is, but it oftentimes within the OCD community is considered an OCD spectrum disorder. So there's a lot of similarities. Um, with body dysmorphic disorder, there's a ton of intrusive thoughts, and in response to the intrusive thoughts or images, compulsive behaviors, whether it's an actual physical behavior or mental compulsion will usually go hands in hands with that. So the treatment that I did for myself was CBT, ERP, and acceptance commitment therapy. So having that experience as a client, I really wanted to take that next step as a clinician and offer that to my clients. So I did a lot of training um, as a clinician to be able to feel that, that I had a strong grasp on these evidence-based practices to treat these disorders. So yeah. it was always something that I knew that I wanted to do once I went back for my master's. I was very clear on the area because of what I had been through and wanted to make sure that people had this opportunity to get the best treatment that there was out there for these disorders. Yeah, well, I bet that's really interesting, and I bet that's really, uh, really helpful and re really uh, reassuring for your clients to know that you can you can understand exactly where they're coming from. No, I agree, and I always tell my clients I can't speak for other therapists because I can only speak for myself coming from the place of being there where my clients have been. And I do feel like there's a sense that they, that I understand the intricacies of this disorder in a way that maybe other people wouldn't because I've experienced it. I've been in the trenches where I didn't think I would be able to go and do my hierarchy or do my exposures or challenge the thought or sit with the discomfort of anxiety. And I have never had a client ever feel that it wasn't a positive thing it makes the client feel more accepted. They feel that I can really understand them in a way that many times others couldn't. And I find that it really motivates them and they buy into treatment a lot more quickly. Mm. And it's and it really brings us to have this beautiful rapport with one another. And the realness of understanding that even if you have this disorder, that you can still live a full life, you know, 
OCD and BDD and all these disorders, they're not curable, but you can live functioning, healthy, happy lives with them. And so I think when clients see me as a therapist who's been down that road and who's open about it, I don't, I don't hide it that, um, when it's clinically, you know, important for me to share that I do, I think that it helps them and it really gets them to a place where they're ready to do the work for themselves. Great. And can you tell us a bit more about, um, body dysmorphic disorder? Because I don't actually know too much about it. Sure. Um, Body dysmorphic disorder is, uh, I always say it's more of a perceptual disorder about one's appearance. So what happens with someone with body dysmorphic disorder, they'll often see what they deem as a flaw or a defect in their appearance that is insignificant or not even there to anybody else. But it is so disturbing to the person that they're not able to function. People with body dysmorphic disorder oftentimes It could be any part of the body, but we oftentimes see it from the neck up. So you'll hear people being concerned about their skin tone, their skin color, um, about symmetry in regards to their facial features, Mm. their nose. It could be acne, wrinkles, facial hair, um, redness, pale teeth, all the above. And what will happen is they'll do a lot of compulsions such as mirror checking, Googling. So Googling is very similar to a lot of people with OCD doing that. Um, asking for a lot of reassurance, doing a lot of checking behaviors. You'll also see some camouflaging behaviors, Mm. a little bit different than OCD in the sense that you'll see a lot of people wanting to go get cosmetics procedures because they still believe it's a physical defect and not, Not uh, yeah, not a mental health issue. Mm. So I always say that we're not the first people that that clients come to, we oftentimes clients will go to their dermatologist or they'll go to a plastic surgeon before they're coming in to see a therapist where they're ready to admit yeah. they actually have this. Yeah. So, um, and what's so, so devastating about this d- disorder is that 80% of people who have it have suicidal ideation and mm. one in four people attempt suicide with body dysmorphic disorders. So it's, wow. it's really a real sad disorder where a lot of people have a ton of shame and it's not really talked about. So my dream was to always get out there and talk about it. And obviously for me, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, would I be in this field talking about my own body dysmorphic disorder? No way. But it was a journey for me to get yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and blessed for that opportunity and has kept me in a place that I have to, you know, hold myself accountable to my behaviors and really make sure that I'm doing what I need to do to stay healthy and stay accountable. But it's definitely something that has taken time for me to get to a place where I'm open and honest about what it is that I struggle with. And the hope in doing so is not selfish. The hope in doing so is to help other people, to bring this disorder out of the shadow and to bring it in in the forefront where people are open and comfortable in getting treatment. And so that's, that was always my goal because I would have loved to have that person in front of me when I was going through this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now that's, that's really interesting. It's, uh, it's, uh, another part of, uh, you know, the OCD spectrum that's, uh, it's less well known, but obviously causes a a lot of, uh, a lot of difficulty for, for the people who experience it. So I think maybe more work should be done on, on kind of getting information out there no? so, so that people know about it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, and uh, obviously right now with everything that's going on with the um, the coronavirus and you're uh, you're having to to work, I guess, on online a lot. Right. So ever since everything has happened in New York, which was around mid March, everything yeah. has kind of shifted towards teletherapy, telemedicine. Yeah. So whether it's through phone calls, Skype, Zoom, or FaceTime that's kind of been the modality of treating clients at this point with mm. everything that's going on, especially in New York where the cases are extremely high. Yeah. And how do you think it compares to actually working in person with somebody? To be quite honest, I've, I've been on both sides. So as a clinician, I've done a lot of work with people because I'm licensed in other states. So I'm also licensed in California, Florida, New Jersey. So I do have clients that I used to see through teletherapy before the coronavirus. And mm. so I also had a therapist that I saw remotely as well at uh, about eight or nine years ago in Florida. So for me, as a client doing you know exposure work and acceptance commitment therapy work and cognitive, cognitive work, it was equal to me. It was, I found that the results were just as, as good. Um, I didn't see really any changes. I think it comes down to a lot of motivation, obviously, you know, because, but I believe in general, this type of work is going to require a lot more than just a therapy session. So what I always tell my clients is the therapy session is there so we can teach new skills. We can check in to see how the, how, how everything is progressing, what's been going on, how they've been doing, but the most of the work, the bulk of it is done outside of the session. So to me, it is not as imperative. When I deal with body dysmorphic disorder, the only thing that comes up is that a lot of people like to do avoidant behaviors, which means they don't, don't wanna leave the house. So the only yeah. problem with, with teletherapy is that it's not forcing that. The hope is that it's enough of a trigger that they see themselves on Zoom, that it's still enough to do it, and that they're gonna do the exposures and the work that come along with it. But I think even, um, you know, research has shown that there really isn't a big difference that the efficacy of the practice and treatment is just as, as, as good as if you were going to a therapist in person. And I'm almost positive that if you ask my clients, they would tell you that they feel like they're doing just as well as they did when mm. they were coming to see me in person. So I don't see any major changes. The only difference is that some people maybe are not that comfortable with this format. Mm. But overall, I, I think it's... Um, really effective. I think it allows people to have more flexibility in who they can see. Um, and I think that um, most people actually enjoy it. So it's, it's, it's been a, you know, a really working for most people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So you think, um, you think that the, the, the important thing is that the therapist, whether they're online or in person, is, uh, is is actually setting exposure work and giving giving the client homework and activities to do in their own time so they can start practicing the skills and because that's that's when they start making the most progress no when they start practicing those skills in their own time like you can only do so much during a, a, a therapy session no absolutely and so um i always tell my clients that that that's like the least of what this treatment is you know mm. You need a great therapist to get you going, and it's great if they have a coach in addition to help them through it, but they have to do the work also, and it's not, it's not like a typical therapy session where you're just going in for depression or talking about your week or talking about a relationship. 
um, the type of work for OCD requires work. There's homework to it. Um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure response prevention requires you to do some pretty intensive work outside of the therapy session. Hmm. So it's, it's really something that someone has to buy into and be a self-starter truly. So, you know, this is just one other component of it. So I've really, I've only seen really good things and I've, and I've actually started with a few, because I, a predominant, a lot of my practice is people that I've seen in person, but I've had about five or six new clients throughout this period who I've actually never met in person and we're doing really well and we're getting all, you know, a lot of the foundation underway with the OCD and, you know, a lot of psychoeducation and getting into the hierarchy and doing the exposure work and incorporating mindfulness and being present and all of that. And so I really, I don't really feel that there's, they're losing anything by doing it. Way. I, I, I totally agree. I, I, the clients that I've been working with online so far have been doing, you know, been doing really well as well. And um, I really do think it's, uh, it's a way that works. And, it, you know, people can, they have the opportunity to be a bit more flexible as well. You know, it's, if they can actually do things from home, they don't have to go somewhere. It, that's an added right. bonus. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so what is your preferred method of of treatment for, for OCD? Sure. So the gold standard treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy using exposure response prevention. Hmm. So with ERP really being the model that I, that I fall on where, you know, I definitely challenge the thoughts and like to look at what the rigid thoughts are and the cognitive distortions and the lenses that people look through. But the exposures to me are what's going to really help and get them into a place of recovery. Mm-hmm. I myself have also very interested in mindfulness and meditation. And so that led me to be more open when my, my former therapist worked with acceptance commitment therapy, which is a third wave behavioral therapy. Yeah. So that th- I do combine that therapy um, as an adjunct to the traditional CBT ERP. And the reason I feel that acceptance commitment therapy is a great adjunct is that it's this idea of accepting what is with obviously this radical acceptance with no judgment and this idea that you can coexist with whatever you're dealing with. In this particular case, you're coexisting with the anxiety and the intrusive thoughts that come along with OCD. Mm. And then look to see what is your value. So what are your values in life? What it is that you want to do? So not related to your OCD, but in life. And the hope is that your values and what you want to do is going to be your motivation to do the work. So you bring that into, you go to your values and you bring that back into doing the exposure work. So I think it's, for me, that's the approach that I tend to use with my clients. I know a lot of traditional OCD therapists, because I I have a ton of colleagues, I'm very involved in the International OCD Foundation, really just do... ERP, CBT, and, and mm. that's fine. But for me, especially because I've been down this road myself as a client, I felt that I was missing something in that treatment. I didn't, Maybe, get, yeah. I didn't get to where I needed to be in terms of my recovery without adding in, you know, acceptance commitment therapy. Even in some, some aspects, using I even use dialectical behavioral therapy skills, which is like dealing with distress tolerance and emotional regulation. So for me, those third wave behavioral therapy treatments have been 
completely life-changing for myself. Mm. And I had that, that idea and this vantage point that this was an important part to, to collaborate with the other, other stuff to have a better modality and different things to be able to treat people more holistically. So I don't, treat people from a cookie cutter approach i tend to obviously using the gold standard research-based treatment but i look at each person as an individual and see okay what it is we need to get to and how do we get there yeah i think that's great i think um you know obviously erp is is like you say the gold standard treatment um and uh act is is the area i like to focus on myself in 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 the work that i do and uh what you i think what you were saying there is is absolutely spot on um, when you when you work with ACT, obviously acceptance is is an absolutely is absolutely key to, to learning to deal with OCD. But then you were talking about values and and saying how that gives you the why, because I think sometimes with with ERP, as as great as it is, and obviously it has all the research to back it up, and it does it does actually work. It's it's a fantastic treatment. But sometimes it can feel a bit cold, you no? Know, if you don't have a why, if you don't have a reason for why you're doing it. And uh, yeah, I think that's what values give you. If you can have the values in the forefront of your mind when you're doing exposure work or when you're facing your fears, that can really uh, make a massive difference, no? No, I agree. I can't imagine doing this work without having a why. Mm. I think you need to have a why in your life to be able to. And I think there's another part that I like um, with act and it's this idea of acceptance and sitting with and coexisting with Hmm. because I think so people and I think even myself when I was younger when you think of mental health and I hope today most people don't view it this way you think okay when I don't struggle with anxiety when I don't struggle with OCD I will then be able to do this this and this and it's like no one a lot of disorders are chronic and two you can't wait until you stop suffering from it because that may never happen. You yeah. have to learn how to coexist with what you have. And I think ACT does a great, great job in, in really showing you this idea of coexisting. I, I always think back to there's a workbook that I use with ACT where the person is carrying all these like signs with them and it says like stress, anxiety, fear. And it's like, and then it's like, it says your life. And people in general will like, stop from it and walk back when they're holding all these things because they feel overwhelmed whereas the idea with act is like okay you're going to hold these things and you're going to keep going and so i think it's more than just the why i think it shows you how you can still live fully with something that you're still dealing with and so i really think i can't imagine not incorporating that into my to my you know treatment with clients I think um, Russ Harris, the author of The uh, Happiness Trap, um, amongst other like, act books as well, he, yeah. um, he talks quite a lot about this idea of the anxiety trap, um, which is basically based on the idea of, you know, we're always trying to fight with our thoughts and, and get rid of them um, because we, we live in a Western society where problem solving is, is the number one tool that we use constantly for everything. And, and we do that for a reason, because actually it works for just about everything, you know, like you, you lose your job, well, you better start problem solving and get a new one, you know, like you lose your partner, you need to do the same thing. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really helpful in many areas of life. But when you start applying that to 
to anxiety disorders, um, you know, and particularly maybe even OCD, maybe even worse. If you try and start problem solving, often all you do is you end up getting yourself more stuck. Um, because with these, uh, with these kind of uh, thoughts that we can never 100% prove right or wrong, if we try to rationalize them, we just, we just end up getting more and more stuck. And this, this is his example of the anxiety trap. Um, and I, I think it's a, really, it's a really useful metaphor. Absolutely. I agree with you tremendously. I think to get yourself into that why, what if, what will be, could have, that's going to keep the vicious OCD cycle alive and well. And so that's yeah. not the way, you know, a traditional psychotherapist dealing with OCD is dangerous for someone. Mm very dangerous so um the idea of any treatment is better than no treatment when you're dealing with ocd i tend to disagree um Mm -hmm. because a lot of clients that i find come in my door have been to people that are not ocd specialists and it's just it's it's interesting to me because as a therapist myself i never take on clients that i am not specializing in i just feel that it's unethical of me and I see therapists all the time take on things that they are just not equipped to. And I think it's just, it's very unethical and it's not right. You know, just reading a book on OCD is not going to make you eligible to be a therapist for someone who has it. No. Well, we've, I don't care if you've worked with this client with other things for years. The best thing for that client would be for you to refer that client to a specialist. Yeah. Not for you to try to piecemeal together what you think you can do to help this person. Yeah. I, really. like, I, I speak OCD, meaning like my language, it's very, it's like common for me. Like it's just, it flows. I don't look at a book. It's just the <laughs> verbiage that I use because this is something I've been practicing yeah. for you, so you many You just years. get it. You just, you just know it inside out. Correct. Yeah. And I, that's for anything, you know, it's like, I wouldn't necessarily want to treat somebody you know, um, with uh, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia and all those things, because that's not my, my niche, you know, that's not. And so I don't just, just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean I'm going to choose to take every single client. And I think unfortunately in today's world, people do it all the time. And I saw it yesterday with, with, with someone else who said that one of her clients has a body focused repetitive behavior and I guess has been seeing this therapist and she asked me, well, do you know like where I could find out more about this? And I'm like, mm. you should, in my head, I'm like, you should just refer her to a therapist that specializes in this. Yeah. Like these type of, of, of disorders, OCD, OCD spectrum disorders need to be treated by someone who knows this treatment. This mm. is not something that anybody should be treating these people with. These are people that should, that know how to treat this and I, I tell clients, you have to ask people, how many patients have they had? What is their success rate? These are all, you know, very important, you know? Mm. So that's just kind of my thought process with dealing with it. No, I think it's a really important message. Um, and if people are listening, you know, you're making such a valid point to, to them to really kind of do their research before they start working with somebody and really do make sure that they are a specialist because it's so important because like you were saying, if you work with the wrong person, it can end up making the, the OCD uh, worse. And that's obviously the last thing that people want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
Okay, can you can you tell us a bit more about um, how you use ERP um, in 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 your practice? Sure. So. When clients come in, I often do an assessment of their OCD. I get a background information about, obviously, a psychosocial, what's been going on. People don't just come in necessarily with OCD. They come in with a host of other issues. But OCD is usually the presenting problem that's causing the most distress. At that point, we try to figure out what the thought process is. So what is the intrusive thought that's bothering them? And then we deal with... What are, so I have my clients write down what are a lot of the intrusive thoughts that come up for them on a regular basis. I have them begin to start to track them. So it'll be a worksheet where they track their intrusive thoughts and follow, then it will show like from zero to 10, how that thought made them feel. So like their fear or anxiety level, zero being none, 10 being the most. I know some mm -hmm. people like for subject units of distress, they'll do zero to a hundred. I just feel like that's very vague so I like to keep it a little smaller and then yeah. I'll have them track, like what compulsive behaviors they do yeah. I also obviously dis utilize psychoeducation to discuss what this is right so what this purpose is why do we use exposure response prevention why am I exposing you to something that you're afraid of so um, you know really get into the heart of the matter that what we avoid or what we will persist right so mm -hmm. anything white is going to persist Anything that we engage with is also going to persist and make us feel much more uncomfortable. So anything we're giving the power of our thoughts to is also going to make it feel even more real. We talk about this idea of, you know, just because you have thoughts and feelings or see images doesn't mean that they're real. It's just, it's just it is. And this idea that people say, well, if I'm having these thoughts and they must mean they're true, but that's not necessarily the case. And we see that with OCD. In terms of exposures, once they have done maybe a week or two of you know, writing down and tracking what they're doing, we come back and we start to break down. And let's say we're dealing with someone with harm thoughts. So their thought is, I'm afraid to watch something on television that has a murder scene for fear that that means I'm gonna wanna hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. But then I would ask them, okay, from zero to 10, how anxious would you be if you had to watch that movie? And so then it would, we would do it like this. So we would go through every compulsion they're doing, and it would either be how anxious, if they're avoiding it, it would be how anxious would you be if you were doing it? Mm. Um, it's a compulsion, like when they see something, they have to call their parent to make sure they're okay. Then it would be like, how anxious would you be if you couldn't call your parent? So yeah. after we, uh, an exhaustive list of all the compulsions and the avoidance behaviors, and we number them based upon their level of anxiety, we begin to set up the hierarchy, starting from the least anxiety, which is going to be one, because obviously zero is none, hmm. going all the way up to 10. And then we begin to do these exposures, which means we're exposing them to it. We're putting them in situations that initially induce fear. The goal of exposure response prevention is to expose it is it is to experience anxiety so let's be yeah. clear exposures are not fun exposures are not relaxing this isn't like meditation exposures are going to induce fear the thing is we're going to show you that you can sit through it and that eventually if you look at the way anxiety is manifested anxiety can get escalated but it usually levels off and then goes down so while you're doing an exposure you may initially feel heightened in terms of your anxiety but then it will eventually come down if you stay in the exposure enough to allow that to happen hmm. response prevention 
part is equally as important as the exposure. Because if someone is to do an exposure, let's just say the exposure was to watch a movie that is has a murder scene in it, and they're able to sit through two and a half hours of this movie, and so that's their exposure, but then right after the movie, they call their parents to find out how they're doing, then they just basically un, uh, they undid what they just did with the exposure. So the response prevention is to make sure that you're not doing anything to neutralize or undo or try to make yourself feel comfortable for what you just did with the exposure. Mm. So all parts of ERP are equally important. And what I always tell clients is that doing it once is not enough. Yeah. Even if it seems to induce anxiety the first time, you still want to do it a couple of more times to make sure that it's something that doesn't bother you anymore. Because mm. one time can just be a fluke, right? So sometimes yeah. our thoughts can bother us, sometimes an experience can bother us, sometimes not. So that's how we keep doing it. Now, if we get to a place where it's too heightened for us, we'll kind of assess what's going on, see if we can break down the exposure to smaller units to make to make it easier. But the goal when we're dealing with ERP is to make sure we get through all the exposures, all the feared experiences. Mm-hmm. Once we get past that, the way I look at exposure, when we when we finish doing what they've set out to do in treatment, I often just look at life for them as an exposure in the sense that I always say, when your OCD is telling you not to do something within limits, you do it. Meaning like, yeah. you're not going to jump out of the building or sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with, if your OCD is saying, you know what, I need to close the door three times because something bad's going to happen. You don't do it. Like anything that comes up when you, I always say, when your OCD is telling you to do something, you do the opposite. Yeah. So past doing the typical ERP that we have mapped out, you still go into life utilizing that same approach, except we're not having a list or a hierarchy to go off of at that point. But yeah. I think it's it's very critical. I do, even through telemedicine, teletherapy, I do often do um, exposures with my clients together. So they're able to get used to the idea of what they yeah. need to do and have any questions or concerns, they're able to get feedback from me in those moments and be able yeah. to do them together, which has yeah. been effective as well. Okay. And um, when, when you're asking people to kind of sit with the anxiety, like how do they actually do that? They're, so they're observing the anxiety. Like how would you, how would you like tell them to, to, to be in that situation when they're doing that? So I, this has been like my theme the past two weeks. I call it like when people have, so with OCD, it's intrusive thoughts. It could be intrusive images. Mm. It could even be intrusive sounds at times because a sound can be associated with a thought. Um, I, I tell clients to begin to kind of watch them like they're on a conveyor belt. So you're just watching them. You're noticing them. And you're coming at it with a non-judgmental stance. So you're not labeling good, bad right, wrong. And you're just coming from this, you know, passive observation. So it's just looking at it and you're not judging it and you're not engaging with. So the idea with OCD is so many people are so caught up in the thoughts because the thoughts are very, very uncomfortable, but that's not the issue with this disorder. The issue is the compulsive part because Mm -hmm. the compulsions, it's what reinforces those intrusive thoughts that make one feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So engagement with the intrusive thought is where the problem lies. So when I say to sit with or be comfortable, I kind of tell clients to kind of take a step back 
and watch. And that's where even the idea of mindfulness and being in the moment is important because so often with OCD, we're jumping to what is it going to be? What if? What will? And so if we're staying mindful and being present, we're only in the here and now, which makes it a little bit easier to be able to just passively observe and mm. kind of come at thoughts non-judgmentally. And that's going to be key because so many people have such horrible themes with their OCD, whether it's pedophilia OCD, whether it's homosexual OCD, whether it's harm OCD, and I'm just naming a few, and they're so horrific to them. So to sit there and not be judgmental based upon these thoughts is going to be very difficult, mm. but it also disarms the thought. And I don't mean to minimize the client with their OCD, but I often tell them to me when I'm working with them, the content is not the problem. So yeah. whatever the thing is, is not what, what my, my, my objective is. My objective is to help you break it by breaking the behaviors. So for me, your thought could be based on a pedophilia OCD or harm OCD. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to, I'm still going to conquer it the same way. Okay. Your thoughts are not your enemy. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. So, so bringing, really bringing a mindful attitude to, to observing the, to, to observing the, the, the thoughts and the anxieties and the, the emotions as they come up and kind of not, not kind of judging them or, or fighting with them at all, just, just allowing them to be there and doing your best to observe them and notice them as they go up and down. No, because that's the one, the one thing we know for certain is nothing kind of ever stays the same. And, you know, with anxiety, often it can feel like, um, you know, like this anxiety is never going to come back down and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. But actually, when you really pay attention to it, uh, you begin to notice, oh, actually, like it's just gone down a little bit or there are there are very small fluctuations in it. And yeah, I, I think it's really helpful, actually, when you have when you bring this kind of interested attitude towards anxiety uh, like an investigator, it, it really does change the way you experience it and the way, the way that you view it. You're no longer kind of, uh, someone who's fusing with it when you're like an investigator who's kind of interested in watching it, you're a third party. It creates uh, a bit more separation between you and the thought. And, and that's, that's a much, a much better place to be. I agree with you. <laughs> um, great. And, um, so could you tell me like when someone's really struggling though with, with ERP and they they really want to do it, but they're, it's too hard. How do you work with somebody like that? Well, that's where I feel like I use these other third wave behavioral mm. therapies. Yeah. Where I feel like you're dealing, if you know anything about dialectical behavioral therapy, which is, um, was created by Marsha Linehan, which is often used for people with, um, borderline personality disorders, but and even eating disorders, that it really helps with dealing with distress tolerance and uh, emotional regulation. And when the, we're dealing with people with OCD, oftentimes they have, they're really unable to deal with their stress and their distress mm. tolerance. So doing a lot of those activities initially will help them. Now you'll have a lot of traditional OCD therapists that will say, nope, you have to encounter this and this is what it is. And I get their thought process, but this is my, my thought process is that <laughs> those people are never going to do ERP because they're never going to get to a place where they're going to feel comfortable enough to engage in it. Yeah. So 
rather not lose them because I know the benefit of what ERP is going to do for them. So mm. I'd rather them where they're at and utilize other techniques to try to lower their anxiety so that they're able to enter into this treatment. Okay. If at any point, it's still really difficult. We may talk about going for a psychiatric evaluation for possibly medication. There is a lot of data that shows that high doses of SSRIs are very effective in helping OCD. And so oftentimes this idea, what you talked about with space, is that you'll hear that with a lot of people on medication, that the medication is not going to make the thoughts go away, but it gives them enough space to be able to enter in to do the exposure therapy. Mm. And, and work. So that's always a tool that we have that we'll utilize to, you know, connect with and work with um, psychiatrists, especially psychiatrists, obviously, that specialize in OCD that are aware of how to utilize the medication properly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's always as well. Yeah. So you view SSRIs as, as, as a, a useful kind of band-aid to, to enable the person to do, to do the work that they really need to do, because sometimes I guess the OCD can be so strong. Uh, it's very, like you were just saying, it's very hard for them to actually do uh, therapies or interventions like ERP. Absolutely. And, and this is the thing. I think sometimes, you know, we have to look at the overall approach. I mean, sometimes there, I have, I would say 50, 50 in my practice. So 50% are on medication and 50% aren't. Yeah. But it's what work for them. I used yeah. to feel personally against medication for myself. But then I, as I got older, I appreciated it. And I utilize it when I need it. I'm not always on medication for my body dysmorphic disorder. But when it's important, I go to it. And I don't look at it as this is going to cure me or this is going to take away my thoughts because it's never done that. Yeah. But when I'm really struggling or feel like I'm relapsing, it gives me the space to be able to go right back into the tools to be able to utilize them again. Yeah. So I do feel they have a place in this work. Um, but it, it, the clients need to be well aware that this is not a curative. And I feel very strong in saying that one should not enter into medication if they don't have intention of doing therapy because medication once removed is mm. not going to be any help. It's not helpful anymore. So for me, when medication was removed, the reason why I was still able to be successful in recovery is because I still had the tools and strategies that I had mm. when I went to therapy and did CBT, ERP, ACT. But if you don't have that, then when medication is withdrawn, you're right back to square one and you have no tools or strategies to, ab to able to you yeah, know, help you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Completely agree. Absolutely. Okay. And coming back a little bit to um, um, body dysmorphic, uh, dysmorphic uh, disorder, you, th does the treatment um, um, vary quite quite a lot between OCD and, and BDD, like how you work with that? So one thing is, is that obviously I have the disorder. So for me, I come at it with a different approach. I do yeah. use CP and ERP and it's very effective yeah. as well as when clients are real, especially with um, BDD, a lot of exposure work is often very, very difficult and so anxiety producing that they often are resistant to even wanting to do it. So I utilize in that time, like definitely pulling from like DBT skills for distress tolerance or emotion regulation. But I think there's a lot missing with traditional OCD therapists working with BDD in that BDD hits at a lot of other areas than just appearance concern. BDD goes down to the core of who you are and how you feel about oneself. Do so mm. you feel worth, feel like you don't belong. And so that 
BDD doesn't just affect how you view yourself in terms of your appearance and how you, it's how you view yourself in terms of where you fit in society. So when yeah. I'm dealing with clients, I'm doing the exposure work, but then I'm also working on, okay, how can you build yourself where appearance isn't your number one concern? How mm. can you build yourself with rebuilding relationships, being able to get back into the workforce, being able to view yourself unrelated to your appearance? So mm. there's a lot more we have to go through than just, okay, we did a ERP, we're done. And even when I deal with OCD, I make sure that we're looking at how we're going to go back into the world, not just, okay, we we, we took away all the compulsions. Okay, what now do we need to work on to make sure that other aspects of your life aren't affected? So I think it's really important. And I feel like when I went to therapy, I didn't get that. No one yeah. ever took the time to say, okay, we're done with those compulsions. How do you feel about yourself? How are you going to re-enter your life? And I'm not ashamed to say this, but I, I really had what I would say BDD in other aspects of my life in the sense that it, I had very bad relationships, often abusive ones, which often was because I didn't feel good about myself. So yeah. even though I was no longer doing the exposures because I didn't need to anymore, I didn't need to do it because I wasn't doing compulsions, I still had this kind of same dialogue going on in my head, this recording, I'm not good enough, I'm not worth it, I, don't, I deserve yeah. less. And so I think it's really imperative, at least for me, when I'm working with my clients with BDD, I go beyond just the exposure work. We have to go, we have to rebuild yourself and your relationship to other people and to where you fit into the world that you're in. So there's a lot more than just the ERP. And I oftentimes think when someone goes to an OCD therapist, yes, it's great because they have a sense of knowing how to treat it in some way, but they often leave out this tremendous part that someone with BDD needs to look at to mm. get to a full recovery. Yeah. And, and do you think it's a, it's a growing area? It's a, it's a growing disorder because of, because of social media and because of, uh, you know, our culture that has such a fascination in, in appearance, it seems to be, you know, an ever, ever kind of growing area. Do you, do you think it's becoming more prevalent? I think it's becoming prevalent, but I also think it's it's word is used wrong. So I know if you see right now, people are saying like OCD isn't an adjective. So this is the thing. The, the word body dysmorphic disorder is not used. It's used as body dysmorphia. And mm -hmm. it's often incorrectly. So is the word out there? Yes. Is it completely correct? No. So as someone who has it and as someone who treats it, it scares me because I feel like it's really minimized. Like they act like it's not a big deal and doesn't everybody have it? No, not really. So I'm glad that it's out there, but I just wish that it was out there in the right way. Yeah. So I think just like OCD, it's taken time for people to truly understand. You don't just say you're so OCD and understanding what OCD truly means. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't just mean like organizing your books a certain way or cleaning yeah. that it's going to take some time for people to truly understand body dysmorphic disorder and for them not to throw it around in a hashtag and think that this is what it is. Mm. You know, my hope, I, I, I've worked with someone else in California on, on forming um, the body dysmorphic disorder foundation. And, you know, with obviously everything that's going on with COVID-19, it's been a little bit more challenging to really kind of start everything but the hope is to be able to get this message out there the hope is to be able to get 
to plastic surgeons, dermatologists' offices, med schools, front lines, to be able to get this to people so that they know about this. Mm. Um, it's out there, but I will say as someone who's had it for over 20 years, it hasn't shifted tremendously. The only difference, at least for me, is that I'm just vocal about it. But I don't really see that there's tremendous amount of information. And I still feel that now the word is slightly out there, but it's misused. So it's, it's, that to me is dangerous, right? So we see that with OCD. It's dangerous to have this wrong meaning with something so serious. Because yeah. what happens to the person, not myself, but someone who has not been treated, they feel minimized, marginalized, and feel like they're not being understood. And that could actually hurt them and make it worse for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and do you, can you tell me, with obviously with OCD, and um, BDD, there are, it's a, a really big part of learning to deal with it, is learning to deal with uncertainty. And uh, you've already kind of talked about it a, li a little bit, but could you kind of um, give us some tips for, for how you can kind of deal with uncertainty a bit better if you are struggling with these disorders? So one of the things I like my clients to do is think about in their life what they're able to do when with some level of uncertainty. And everyone, I've never met one person, no matter how severe their OCD is or BDD, where they're completely paralyzed in every aspect of their life, right? Mm. So there's something doing where they've accepted some level of uncertainty. Because the reality is this, everything in this world is uncertain. The only certainty we know is that we will one day die. How that will be, we have no idea. When that will be, we don't know. So. People that I'll say, are you afraid of flying? No. Are you afraid to drive a car? No. Are you afraid? So I'll say, well, then you're accepting some level of uncertainty, yeah. right? So you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. are going on an airplane, you get yourself. So we look at, I think it's important because I think people need to see tangible t moments in their life where they've accepted some level of uncertainty. And then we talk about this idea that with OCD or BDD, whatever we're doing in terms of compulsion, whether it's mental or physical compulsion, that is not really doing anything to take away uncertainty. It's a false sense of removing uncertainty. It's actually not doing anything. It's mm. not really, you're not going to have certainty because you're stepping backwards and forwards 10 times. You're not, you know, by checking or getting reassurance, none of that is going to provide you with certainty. It's this false sense because you're feeding the OCD. It's not real. Yeah. So I try to tell the client that so they understand it. And especially they're able to get it more when they're not in the midst, obviously, of being triggered. Yeah. But what I really find really makes them like be like, wow, is like noticing times in their life where they've accepted uncertainty. And that gives them, I always like to come from like a strengths perspective in the sense of like, what has been helpful for you, right? So we don't want to come from something where they've never been able to be successful at something. So we look at where they've been successful. And if they've been, if they've had a lot of moments in their lives, whether it's through driving a car or going places where they weren't scared, I use that as, you know, fuel to be like, look, in these moments in your life, you've, you've accepted some level of uncertainty and you were okay. So let's, why don't we experiment and try with this and see if we can. And I also bring up like the things that they've done in the past to help them hasn't worked. 
So are they open to at least try this? This isn't anything that's dangerous. This is something we're going to do together. This is something I've done myself. Um, I never put you in a situation that you're going to be uncomfortable. Any point that you want to come out of it, I'm here to help assist you with it. And so I think, you know, I think it's, it's, it's understanding their need to want certainty, but really reminding them that that doesn't exist ever. And yeah. that these false you're getting a false sense of certainty, but it's yeah. not real. It's yeah, not yeah, real. Yeah. I, I love this idea of reminding people that they already experience so many situations in their lives where they are actually accepting the uncertainty. Um, I think that's a really good way of, uh, of showing I've, I've not come across that before. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good idea. Um, okay. And another question in regards to compulsions, you know, people get so stuck. They really, they really feel like, you know, sometimes they have no option, but to perform their, their compulsion, which is obviously keeping the cycle of OCD going. Um, for someone who's really struggling with that, do you have any, any, any tips that can really help them to kind of, you know, just create a bit of space to enable them to kind of, to, to not perform that compulsion. Um, Cause it can be so hard in the moment when you're trying to, you know, you're trying your best to diffuse from a thought or you're, you know, you're really, you really don't want to perform that compulsion, but you don't see any alternative. Is, well, is there something they can do in that situation? I think sometimes this is where I like to use the cognitive approach of having them kind of see their thoughts play out because I think it is an important part of this treatment in the sense mm. that you have an automatic thought like if I don't close the door three times, everyone in my family is going to die. And so mm. it's like that is like a tremendous feeling. It's, it's really stressful. You feel this sense of responsibility and that you must do it and there's such a consequence in your mind that this can happen. So I think when you pull it down and you see, okay, what's the thought coming in? What and how anxious is this making you? And this might make someone an anxious of like a 10. And then what is the evidence for it? Well, I just have the thought. That's what most people are going to say, you know, so that's, is that evidence? What's the evidence against? My family is healthy. They take care of themselves. They live in a nice neighborhood. They have an alarm system, all these things. And then um, they have a, you know, a dog in the house. And so what's a more rational way of looking at it. Well, more rational is that, you know, we don't have certainty in everything, but the likelihood that something catastrophic is going to happen, we don't really have any evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes when we pull the thought out a little bit, it does give some space because if we're just looking at the straight intrusive thought, it can feel very overwhelming. So I think that's one way of kind of looking at it at a more balanced perspective. Um, and people aren't going to love this too much, but sometimes when the anxiety is too over, like for certain clients, then I do want them to maybe do something to ground themselves in the moment, do something to kind of I, like, literally for me, it could be, you know, putting your feet on the ground, especially in the warmer months, just feeling your feet on the earth, looking around you and just mm. being very of what you see, being very present, like coming back. Because oftentimes when we're in this moment of like fight or flight with the exposure, it's that anxiety, that rush, that adrenaline, the cortisol level. And we need to just ground ourselves in the moment. So it, I, you know, um, always carrying like a cold water bottle just to kind of check, you know, it's this idea of tipping your body. It's an exercise in DBT where you change the temperature of your body to relax yourself. 
I know a lot of OCD therapists are not proponents of trying to relax and stuff like that. Again, the goal is for them to get through this. The goal is for them to be successful in ERP. The goal is not to scare them where they don't want to do it because then that's yeah. not good for anybody. So, yeah. and then also we come back to the reality, is this exposure too difficult for you right now? Do we need to break it down more? Do we need to do something else first? Um, because not every exposure, we're not gonna just go to the highest exposure. And even if that's the next in line, it still may be too, too difficult. So yeah. being open as the therapist to be able to revisit the hierarchy and to see what we might need to do to adjust it for the clients. We're not trying to um, reassure them or take away all anxiety, but we're not trying to, you know, throw them into the lion's den where they can't, they can't get out. That's not going to, you know, that's not going to work. No, you know, it's not going to work at all. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. Good. And if you could only give one piece of advice to people who are struggling with OCD or BDD, like what, what would that advice be? Tricky one. <laughs> We're not alone. There's some really great, great help out there. Yeah. And people do live a full life with this. And I yeah. think that that's really important. I think you could speak to many there's a lot of us OCD and BDD therapists that actually have it, but you could speak to a lot of people that have OCD or BDD that are not in this, this, you know, field who live very full lives, who are very happy, who have careers, who have families, who have spouses, and they are just living their best life, even with this. And so I, I myself, like, never thought I would be where I am today, you know, being a mom and, and having my own practice and just feeling like I could, I'm okay in my, in my body. Like I'm okay. I'm okay right now. I still have everything I have, but I'm okay. And yeah. I can coexist with it. And I think if people just know that there's help out there, they're not alone and that they can still live fully. I think that I hope that that brings them enough you know, desire, motivation, and courage to go out there and try to find somebody. I know not, I don't know, you know, I'm in New York, I'm in the States. I don't know, you know, in Europe and every other place, like what the treatment's like out there. But I really hope that it's, that it's better or just it's the same as it is in the States where there's a lot of people that know how to treat it and that they can get the support and help to live the life that they envision for themselves. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think maybe the treatment in the US is is, you know, some of the best treatment in the world. It certainly seems like um, the therapists and, and the counselors and people working with people with with these kind of problems. Um, thank you so much for, for, for your time. It's been really nice talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No, fantastic. It's been I'm sure it's gonna be really helpful for, for many people. Remember, if you want to know more about me, you can check me out on Instagram, Robert James Coaching UK. You can go and join the Facebook group if you like, the Robert James Coaching Anxiety and OCD Support Group. And also you can check out my website, www.robertjamescoaching.com. Many thanks. And now just a quick reminder of my disclaimer. Any information that you view on my website, Instagram page, Facebook group, or anywhere else online, or any information that you listen to on the podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical or mental health advice from a doctor, psychologist or any other medical or mental health professional.